I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up next on The Trade Guys, we have a very special episode devoted to the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which has now taken effect in the United States. Don't miss this one. Trade Guys are coming at you right now. Today, The Trade Guys are joined by John Foote, who is a partner at Kelly Dry, a place where Bill Reinch sometimes hangs his hat when he's feeling, you know, like he could just hang out somewhere else other than CSIS. Scott, we know all about that. John, welcome to the podcast. I should also mention at the outset that you are the publisher of an important newsletter called Forced Labor Trade. You can find it at forcelabortrade.substack.com. It is about CBP's enforcement of the forced labor import ban. Bill, I know you have some things to add about your colleague as well. Well, I'm really happy to have John with us for a couple of reasons. First of all, he's a leading expert on the forced labor issue and the UFLPA, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. A good part of his practice uh, is he has a customs practice. So anybody out there that has customs issues or compliance problems, here's a good place to go is talk to John. But we thought it would be particularly useful for our listeners to take a somewhat deeper dive into the Uyghur issue and the forced labor issue, which is very much in the news recently because as of a month ago, CBP started enforcing it. We've talked about it in the past in general terms, but Scott and I and Andrew thought it would be really useful to have somebody who really is deeply involved in it and is working with companies that are attempting to navigate the challenges that it presents to talk a little bit about what it does, how it works, what kind of problems or challenges companies are encountering, and where he thinks this is all going to roll out. I particularly wanted to do this because my sense is this is going to be a much bigger deal in, in the trade landscape than people thought originally. I mean, people thought, well, forced labor, okay, it's going to be really important for a handful of companies or a handful of industries that are engaged in Xinjiang province, end of story. As we're discovering, because of where they're enforcing, looking at cotton, looking at therefore textiles and apparel, looking at polysilicon, which means chips and solar panels, Xinjiang stuff in a lot more supply chains than people think. And this may end up being a much more significant part of our overall trade policy than people anticipated. That's going to create some dilemmas, which we've already seen in the solar case, where we spent some time in May talking about the problem the president faced and what to do about tariffs and circumvention of Chinese imports by shipping the production to Vietnam and, and Malaysia and Thailand and elsewhere. It raises the question now whether, you know, having dealt with that problem and, and made a very difficult decision, that may all be a minor problem compared to the forced labor provision, which is not a tariff. It's an absolute ban. So, so in other words, we, we brought John on because we wanted to talk to somebody who knew what they're talking about, about the subject. Yes. Unlike Scott and me, we want to talk to an expert. <laughs> so true. So, uh, John, why don't you kick it off? Tell us a little bit about what's actually happening out there. Yeah, sure. Well, to level set a little bit on on um, context, you know, the U.S. has had this forced labor import ban, actually had the law since 1930. And the law for many, many years was part of actually the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which was the infamous tariff bill that had the effect of prolonging the, the Great Depression. 
But one provision within that bill was Section 307, and it was a forced labor import ban. And what it did was it made it illegal to import any product in the United States that was made wholly or in part with forced labor. Now, at the time of enactment, there was a a clause in the statute which said that the law, the ban did not apply to any product that was not produced in sufficient quantities inside the United States to satisfy consumptive demand, which is sort of an odd exception for a trade law, right? Because sort of the premise of most import activity is that you're importing goods that aren't already made in sufficient quantities in the United States. You can justify just about every import on that basis. But that was the exception. While the law did have periods of enforcement in the 50s and 60s, and then again, a little bit in the 80s, and against the Soviet Union in the 80s, a little bit against China in the early 90s, it really had not been enforced at all since about 1994, 95. And substantially, that was attributed to this this clause that was present in the law. That clause was removed in 2016 by the Trade Facilitation Trade Enforcement Act, which was an update to the trade law, the customs provisions within that in 2016. And so Customs has been working on enforcing a forced labor import ban since about 2016. And then the Uyghur issue sort of reared its head and the world took note of the systematic oppression of Uyghur individuals, the surveillance state movement of um, well over a million Uyghur individuals into forced labor camps and conditions. And there were also a lot of concerns about the transfer and movement of Uyghur workers from Xinjiang elsewhere in the country under labor transfer programs, under conditions that that strongly suggested the presence of forced labor. And so I think as Congress was looking for some way to address that issue with, you know, occurring in the context of a geopolitical rival, seeing a tool lying around called the forced labor import ban seemed like a great tool to reach for. And that is where sort of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act was born. And basically what that law does is it makes a presumption that any good that's produced in Xinjiang has been made with forced labor and that any good that is produced by an entity anywhere in China that has taken a transfer of Uyghur labor is also presumed to have been made with forced labor and therefore falls subject to this forced labor import ban. The law is enormously powerful because of a particular clause in it that says wholly or in part. And this little four word phrase Um, is interpreted by customs to bring the entirety of a supply chain in scope. So the law bans the importation of goods made wholly or in part with forced labor means that if you have deep in the supply chain commodities that were made with forced labor, then the finished product could be banned from importation, prohibited from importation. With the sort of thumb on the scale that the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act provides, now any component Any raw material that originates in Xinjiang is subject to the UFLPA and therefore is subject to the ban. And yeah, I mean, Bill, you said it very well. Like This has an enormous impact because goods that are originating in Xinjiang, raw materials that are originating in Xinjiang, or goods and products and raw materials and components that are being produced throughout China by any Chinese company that has taken a transfer of Uyghur labor any of those other Chinese companies are subject to being listed under the UFLPA and then goods that were produced by those Chinese entities are subject to enforcement. And it doesn't matter sort of where the goods go after they are touched from the problematic region or one of these problematic entities. If the goods go to a third country, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, it doesn't matter. The finished goods are subject to the provisions of the UFLPA. And then Congress has decided to go ahead and fund it enforcement at just an absolutely unprecedented 
level. They've put tens of millions of dollars to customs already. Customs got a earmark of close to $30 million just for the enforcement of the UFLPA. The budgetary request for the next fiscal year is um, north of $70 million. Customs is looking to bring on 300 full-time personnel for the enforcement of the UFLPA. These are just astronomical numbers in the context of trade enforcement. That puts that funding for enforcement of the UFLPA roughly on par with the entire budget for BIS. It's more than the entire budget of OFAC for sanctions enforcement. So just absolutely unprecedented to put so much resources behind the enforcement of a single trade law. And that's why I agree with you. I think this is really a sleeper dimension of the U.S.-China trade war, potentially just as disruptive as the tariffs were, the three law tariffs, but arguably more so because you can't just pay an extra cost, pass a cost along. You're dealing with market access at a pretty fundamental level. Well, John, you raised the issues of scope, which are immense because of some of, some of what's produced in this area. Cotton, for instance, and cotton winds up in everything, fabrics and apparel, but much beyond apparel, cotton is a useful ingredient in many, many products or things like uh, chemicals, polyphenol chloride. You know, so you've got a scope problem, but you've also got a sort of reversal of the typical presumption of knowing and the, the standards that are used in most sanctions law. This is sort of a guilty to prove an innocent affair with, with customs. And the knowing standard is actually very important for reliance for businesses that are, are trying to stay legal and just committed a footfall, basically. Now, footfalls are penalized pretty heavily here. You're, you're exactly right. You know, there, there are a lot of complexities associated with this, and it very much is a guilty until proven innocent. <laughs> and th- this is why I've actually just you know started writing a newsletter on enforcement, because it, it gets pretty tricky. You only have to sort of make one presumption or two presumptions or one or two evidentiary standards before you can get pretty disoriented pretty quickly. There are a number of very complex evidentiary questions that have to be made in the context of enforcing a forced labor import ban. By my count, there are at least five, and the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act addresses one of those. It says that if you have a shipment that was linked to Xinjiang or was linked to a listed entity, you have to present a certain amount of proof. You have to present proof by a clear and convincing evidence that there was no forced labor involved, and therefore the shipment is is subject to being admitted. But there are a bunch of other evidentiary determinations, right? There's the evidentiary determination about where forced labor is happening. There's the evidentiary determination that customs has, which is, well, which shipment should I stop, right? Which shipments do I think are linked to Xinjiang? Because customs does not always have perfect visibility into that. And then what if you want to argue that the UFLPA does not apply? And that actually is where most companies are sitting, right? They they want to argue that a particular import that gets detained by customs provisionally, they want to be able to argue, no, the UFLPA does not apply because there is no link to Xinjiang within this imported merchandise. And there is no link to a listed entity within this imported merchandise. So let my shipment go free. How much proof do you have to present to customs in order to demonstrate that the UFLPA does not apply? That statute doesn't resolve those other very tricky and enormously consequential evidentiary questions. What it does do is it says, once you have a shipment that is definitely linked to Xinjiang or to a listed entity, you have an enormously high burden of proof to try and clear the shipment. And in fact, it's such a high burden of proof that I think the consensus view within the importing community is that it can never be cleared. It can never be achieved because there are 
a long list of due diligence requirements you would have to comply with. You have to answer any question that customs ever presents about your shipment, answer it completely and effectively. Then you have to have proof about the conditions of labor throughout the entire supply chain. Prove that notwithstanding the link to Xinjiang or a listed entity, there was no forced labor. And then customs has to be willing to sort of put, put skin in the game and tell the relevant congressional committees that you are the exception to the rule. <laughs> that, is a, that is a tall order. And I think that there are very few companies that are looking at that and thinking that they can, in fact, clear that, which means that the whole sort of focus and debate is, is there any Xinjiang origin content in my merchandise? And is there any content from an entity that has been listed under the UFLPA in my merchandise? And as you rightly point out, there is a lot of merchandise that has a link to Xinjiang or a link to a listed entity. And there's also just a lot of uncertainty. Because Xinjiang is a major source of cotton. It is a major source of polyvinyl chloride, PVC. It's obviously integral within the solar supply chain specifically. And really any solar product, right? Any solar product that has a supply chain link to Xinjiang is in scope of the UFLPA and facing down that enormously high burden of proof to, to obtain clearance. So I think that the, the, the potential impact here for an industry like the solar industry, which does have um, definitely a lot of supply chain links to the Xinjiang region, um, is potentially far greater than people have recognized. So, John, let me ask you this. You said that this is the sleeper dimension of the U.S.-China trade war. What does it mean for us regular Americans? I mean, you know, certainly the solar industry, and you've pointed out some other things, but what are the impacts that we should be feeling now and going forward? That's a good question. You know, if you think about the, the Section 301 tariffs, the China tariffs that Trump put put in effect on, on goods from China, you know, you could ask the average American whether they sort of knew about that or were aware of that or had any experience, subjective experience of it. And what the, what the data showed was that most of those tariffs were not sort of passed along the chain in such a way that consumers were actually finding higher prices as a result notwithstanding the current inflationary environment, there doesn't seem to be a really, at least as far as I've been able to, to assess, a credible argument that the Section 301 tariffs were a major cause of that. They're just infinitesimally small relative to some of the other significant economic factors that, that have been driving the inflation. So did people experience the Section 301 tariffs? No, not necessarily, but it certainly influences the, the geopolitical relationship. It certainly influences the trade relationship. Will folks experience the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, it's hard to say how the average consumer will experience that. I mean, this is something that is certainly first and foremost experienced by the business community. If enforcement does in fact ramp up in the way that it seems like it is going to based on the funding, based on the personnel that CBP wants to staff, and if in fact the solar import the solar imports are in fact as linked to Xinjiang as they are reported to be, there could definitely be a decrease in the availability of solar equipment. How many of the average American consumers are looking to buy solar panels and, and have them installed in their homes? It's a small percentage, I think, of the average American population, but it's present. But I think the bigger impacts are on the geopolitical relationship. Obviously, China does not like this law, resists and resents its enforcement and, and very much disagrees with some of the underlying characterizations. And it has a very significant impact on, on businesses, right, which have complex global supply chains and a lot of reliance on manufacturing in China, all of which is sort of at risk under the UFLPA. 
Well, this is a wonderful gift from the Congress, who probably thought they were doing something really smart and really effective here. But compliance looks horrific. The last time I was involved in one of these, John, was with something called the Lacey Act. The Lacey Act was a very old ban on, on endangered animals that somebody got the wise idea. I think uh, somebody who happened to be a member of Congress, but got the brilliant idea that we ought to extend that to plant life, that any endangered plant species. But they forgot totally about the compliance side. In this case, so the, one of the first calls was from the Japan auto manufacturers who said, uh, by the way, in every car we send to the United States, there is a owner's manual made of paper, which is a plant product. Is that covered? And nobody had an answer. The company I worked for bought Rayon for one of our products. Rayon is made from wood pulp. And I'll take you to a Rayon factory and look at that tray of pulp that it starts out with. And you tell me if any endangered species are in there. I'm saying probably not. But <laughs> was, these compliance issues are quite serious for companies. And with the presumption that, that you're doing something wrong unless you can prove you're not, this seems like a nightmare. You, you raise a, a really good comparison with the Lacey Act. I think that if you ask the um, the folks on the Hill who were um, instrumental in crafting this legislation, if you ask them sort of what was your intent, I think they would say very clearly, we want companies out of Xinjiang. We want companies no longer sourcing in Xinjiang. Well, the reality of global supply chains is that they're vast. As you know, they're enormously complex. And I think that over the course of the last couple of years, Companies that knew that they were, in fact, sourcing, for example, from a direct supplier in Xinjiang, many of them, I would argue, I would, I would venture to say most of them have ended those relationships, have terminated those relationships. The question now is much more, are there deep in the supply chain linkages to Xinjiang where it's not you're buying a good from Xinjiang, but the company that you're buying a good from is buying a component from another company that is buying a raw material that may have originated in Xinjiang. And as an importer, you may not have knowledge of that. If you think about the effect of what the UFLPA is going to be, certainly companies are putting forth a lot more effort to sort of extract themselves and their supply chains and make sure that their supply chains don't have a nexus to Xinjiang. That is certainly the goal. The problem is that because the UFLPA sits on top of this arcane statute written in the 1920s and enacted in 1930, that has never really had an evolution because it sits on top of that infirm foundation. There are these other complicated evidentiary questions and determinations that simply aren't addressed by the statute. And that presents a risk that there is a significant amount of merchandise that does in fact have no link to Xinjiang, but could nevertheless get caught up in enforcement. And that's where there are much more legitimate concerns, I think, on the part of the importing community, right? Nobody needs to preserve their access to Xinjiang for production, setting aside arguably the, the solar industry, which seems pretty inextricably linked to it, at least for the time being. And nobody needs to be sourcing from a factory in China that is benefiting from forced labor. No one has an interest in that. But what people do have an interest in is being able to import goods that don't have a link to that. But there's so much ambiguity and uncertainty around global supply chains of what customs can and cannot presume about a particular shipment that there is a real risk of sort of over extensive enforcement, capturing a lot of stuff that isn't that isn't even designed to be within scope. So far, the, the big items have been solar panels, polysilicon, cotton, tomato paste. 
What else? Are you hearing about other industries, other sectors that we haven't made the news yet? I mean, there's certainly other dimensions of production in Xinjiang. Um, and there are some, some think tanks who are obviously working on trying to document and analyze sort of what, what additional production is happening in Xinjiang. C4ADS is a nonprofit think tank, the Center for Advanced Stu- uh, Defense Studies here in DC. They've put out some good scholarship on this question. There is focus on, you know, we mentioned PVC before. There's focus on rayon. There is some discussion about aluminum production within Xinjiang. I mean, the truth about this particular province is that it has become pretty integral to a range of industrial and and manufactured goods. There is a lot of economic output from Xinjiang that makes its way into um, manufactured goods elsewhere in China and elsewhere in the world. How is Europe differing in their policy from the way we're addressing this? Yeah, that's a great question. There have been early discussions and some, some movements in the EU towards considering a forced labor import ban. Part of the answer to that question depends on sort of which lens you are looking at this law through. This law can be seen, right, as a, as a human rights focused law, as a sustainability type law. And the EU has generally had um, a different approach to sustainability questions. The EU's approach, I think, could be fairly summarized as looking to incentivize companies or require companies to conduct certain amounts of due diligence with respect to their supply chains. Sustainability law or you know, social compliance law with respect to supply chains has evolved in very minor steps. You know, there was a batch of legislation that was sort of focused on requiring companies to talk about how do you reduce forced labor in your supply chain? Tell the world, put it on your website, right? How do you eliminate modern slavery from your supply chain? Tell the world, create a thing on your website. The next sort of evolution in that is actually requiring companies. We want to make you sort of look at your at your supply chain and do some due diligence and make sure that you've mitigated risk of forced labor or adverse human rights impacts caused by your economic activity, purchasing goods and selling and importing them and selling them. The EU has been very has been sort of all in on that kind of due diligence, mandatory due diligence type approach. Section 307, the Forced Labor Import Ban and the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act, moves sustainability law like a couple of decades forward by requiring companies effectively to have traced, to have mapped their supply chains and to have traced the procurement of goods at a level that no other law in the world has required. Starting with the beginning of enforcement, it is expecting a level of traceability that simply does not exist. So this has been a, you know, a decades fast forward moment for sustainability law. But that said, if you think about it from the um, geopolitical standpoint there, you know, I think the EU is definitely of two minds about sort of how it wants to engage economically and on a trading basis with China. There has been a proposal that's been floated in European Parliament to adopt um, a similar style import ban. And I think that there will be a lot of eyes on the U.S. and how CBP manages to enforce the UFLPA and whether it's successful at, in fact, ending the importation of goods that are linked to Xinjiang or to forced Uyghur labor. But at this point, Europe is sort of all talk and no action, right? Is that a fair summary? I don't mean to be too harsh on our European friends, but they're not doing anything yet. They're talking about it, but not doing it. On the European-China trade relationship, I, I do not disagree with your, with your characterization. So that means Europe's buying all those products that can't come to the United States. wonder what that's doing for Uyghur labor. 
that is, is, is really one of the fundamental issues associated with a market, even like the United States, trying to tackle an issue like this and sort of go it alone, right? I mean, you, you have a problem like this, right, which is, which is occurring on a scale that is really unprecedented um, since uh, the end of World War II. And, and you have to ask the question, and now global supply chains being what they are, there are, in fact, linkages, commercial linkages to the practice, right? This is not just an isolated phenomenon happening in, in some you know, provincial backwater, right? This is, there, there are definitely connections to commerce. But the largest consumer market in the world cannot, on its own, effectively stop the problem. And in fact, built right into Section 307 and the UFLPA, is the notion that, look, this is just a U.S. trade law, which means that if you have a shipment that is detained and is, in fact, linked to Xinjiang or, or linked to a, a listed entity, companies have the option of exporting those goods and sending them to another market um, that doesn't have a similar sort of provision. And from a practical standpoint, it's not a bad idea for a company as opposed to just sort of eating a, a commercial loss. But from a policy standpoint, from a human rights standpoint, there are certainly concerns about that. So you're absolutely right. I mean. A forced labor import ban is sort of only effective if at least a, a plurality of the major consumer markets of the world are aligned and agree agree to have a similar style approach. And we're definitely not at that stage now. But look, these things take time to sort of develop and grow. And I think people want to see, I think internationally, people you know, countries want to see, is this like this is a grand experiment that has never been undertaken before. It's an effort to try and use trade laws to address a human rights issue in a way that is radically different than the use of sanctions. It's radically different than just requiring companies to conduct some due diligence and publish a report. It is a novel use of trade laws to achieve a particular type of social end. And I think that there is a lot riding on whether it is done successfully or turns into just a hot mess. What are, what's the early, what are the early signs of what Customs is doing? Uh, I mean, you, you talked about the resources that are being put into this. How aggressive are they being? I would characterize some of the initial reports that have come out from CBP's enforcement is that Customs has been very aggressive. You know, you mentioned my, my newsletter at the, top of the, at the top of the broadcast, and I just put out an article about this, which is that Customs will stop a shipment at the border. And they'll say, okay, we think that there's forced labor in the shipment. Um, they won't necessarily tell you why. They won't necessarily tell you where customs thinks the link to Xinjiang is or where they think the link to a listed entity is. So an importer is sort of immediately already working at a disadvantage, trying to rebut something that they're not exactly sure what they're trying to rebut. But it has been reported, for example, in the solar, some of the early solar detentions that customs is requiring proof of the procurement of quartz sand which is a deep in the supply chain commodity for the production of solar modules, solar panels, the quartz sand. I mean, this is a, this is a very deep, deep commodity. And the question is, is, well, where was this procured? How do you know where it was procured? What sort of documentation do you have and can you produce? Now, I'm assuming that because the debate is happening around quartz sand, that there is not otherwise clearly a link to Xinjiang, that these are perhaps solar panels that don't have a clear link to Xinjiang, but Customs is stopping them and trying to make sure that no silicon or no quartz sand came from Xinjiang and made their way into the, into the merchandise. That's an incredibly aggressive approach on the part of Customs. It's an enormously high level of demand. 
It's difficult because companies have not been in a place where they have this knowledge. It had not been a legal requirement. And in fact, the way the UFLPA sort of, quote unquote, requires a company to have done this sort of supply chain mapping, well, it's not spelled out as such within the, the text of the law. The law does not say you must map your supply chain. You must have complete traceability of every component of the supply chain. That's an interpretive decision that Customs is making in the course of these sort of early enforcement decisions where they're detained a shipment. They'll say, we think this is linked to Xinjiang. And importer will say, no, I don't think it is. And they'll say, all right, we'll prove it. You have 30 days to prove that there's no link to Xinjiang. So you put in a bunch of proof about everything that you can figure out about the supply chain. Here's where our tier one manufacturer is. Here's what the product is. Here's how it was manufactured. Here's where all the components came from. Here's where we think all the raw materials came from. We've collected all this information, a huge amount. You send that into customs and then customs will take a couple of months and then come back and say, nah, we disagree, right? These dates don't align or we don't think that this, this is sufficient proof that there is definitely no nexus to Xinjiang. So we're going to treat this as subject to the UFLPA. That's a, an aggressive posture that has been customs approach in enforcing some of the forced labor enforcement actions that targeted Xinjiang before the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. It's how they appear to be continuing the approach. It's extremely aggressive. But of course, very few companies sort of have the appetite to challenge this from a legal standpoint. I mean, who wants to sue customs over their forced labor enforcement? It's not a, not a very uh, palatable sort of concept. But yeah, so the answer to your question is it's been, been very, very aggressive um, so far. Yeah, that, that headline on the Wall Street Journal for companies isn't a good headline. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it. it's not a good look. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, used to work on corporate communications for uh, the pharmaceutical industry. And one of their lawsuits, patent lawsuits, was pharmaceutical manufacturers v. Nelson Mandela because the, the violation occurred in South Africa. And, and I remember calling him up and I said, Tom, why would you guys sue Nelson Mandela? And his response was, because Mother Teresa was dead. <laughs> I mean, this right. is really from, bad from one saint to another. Exactly. My you just can't go there. Oh, gosh. John, this is really fascinating discussion. Thank you for coming on today. You know, I wanted to close by asking, is this approach the best approach for the United States to combat forced labor? I'm a believer in the idea of using a trade law to combat supply chain links to forced labor. I think it's an incredible idea. And the power of that, the idea, I think, is pretty apparent to anyone who looks at the law and thinks about trade policy and understands the pervasive nature of forced labor, of modern slavery, of you know, severe labor rights abuses that occur globally and, in fact, are linkable to global supply chains. I think the idea of this type of statute is enormously powerful. The law was not built for the purpose to which it is being applied. And that's really the issue. You know, I mentioned that this was Section 307 of that, of that Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. Section 303 of that same law was actually the first um, countervailing duty law that the U.S. ever adopted. It was also a couple sentences long. It was about a half page of text in the original statute. And countervailing duty law has had the benefit of decades of practice, use, and evolution, right? To the point where today, what, what we have as a, as a countervailing duty, as an anti-subsidy trade remedy law regime globally does not really much resemble at all the sort of the first half page version of this that appeared at that point in time. Section 307 has never evolved. And therefore, these important questions, many of these important sort of 
very like detail and very specific tactical type questions about how the law is going to function and how it is going to operate have never been addressed. And the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act did some important things. It made determinations that only Congress can make, which is that for the U.S., we consider these conditions in Xinjiang and throughout China with respect to Uyghurs to be forced labor. We consider that. That's a political determination. China regards it radically different. The U.S. says this is what it means in U.S. eyes. Only Congress can make that determination. And Congress decided to put a presumption on all goods from Xinjiang because it's difficult to sort of parse out one thing from another as being tainted or not tainted and decided to shift that burden of proof. It was a decision, right? People can agree with it, like it, disagree with it, dislike it. But that was the decision that was made. The underlying statute desperately needs to be developed. It needs to be evolved. I've written about this. I've talked about it. I have ideas about it, but I'm sure a lot of people would have ideas about it. If it can be developed effectively in a manner that is fair and measured and reasonable, I think that a forced labor import ban has a lot to commend it. Well, John, we don't say this that often on this podcast, but Bill Reich was a real genius for inviting you on the podcast today. You never say that. You never said that before in your life. We've yes. never said it before, but this was... Make a note. Yeah. 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 Really, thank you for your expertise, for your insight on this issue. I think you said it best. This is a sleeper dimension of the U.S.-China trade war. Really appreciate it today. Guys, we can't do any better than John Foote. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me, guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.